one of the wonderful experiences out about it is you can feel them finding their you know mojo for lack of a better word you can almost see the moments when it's happening and uh all of that leads up to the the rooftop experience which of course is one of the it's got to be one of the 10 great moments and i would say in rock mm-hmm. history period you know along with you know elvis etc it's just uh it's remarkable and it's especially remarkable because of everything that's come before you know you go back to the first week in january you can't imagine this band doing a whole concert. They haven't even written the songs yet. Mm. <laughs> and yet, by the end of the by the end of the show, there they are. This week's Wednesday was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. More folks in the Beatle world have left us in the past couple of weeks. We start off from the uh, earliest Dennis Liller, who was uh, probably best known to us for being in that picture of very young John Paul and George taken by Mike McCartney at Paul's cousin's wedding party, <laughs> where the quarrymen at that time were asked to perform. And, you know, it's a photo that we're all familiar with. You got the three very young Beatles. In, and then on the far left, you got this fella holding on to a beer, just sort of looking at the three Beatles. He passed away. He was a reasonably close friend of the McCartney family. And Mike posted a really nice bit of condolence to him on Twitter. So that's number one. Number two, Henry Grossman, who is probably best known for taking over 7,000 photos of the Beatles. He was he was first assigned to follow them on the Sullivan Show. Time magazine sent me to the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, I photographed that as a photojournalist that afternoon. And, uh, and I spent a day or two with them there in their hotel room photographing them as they played Monopoly and cards and whatnot, photographed the concert that night. And uh, the next year, the Daily Mirror called me and said, can you go to Nassau for us on an assignment with our reporter? So I did, I went down for a week, came back with pictures, showed them to Life Magazine before I sent them off to London. Life Magazine said, go back, so I did. In Nassau, I, I became friends with them. And at one point, I'm sitting on the steps here with John, he's trying to comb my hair with the, all of them. He's trying to comb my hair into a beetle cut. Ringo took the picture. I love that picture. Then they were going to Austria, Salzburg first, and then I spent the rest of the time that they were filming in Austria with them, went to London with them, and uh, became friends. He recorded on film the entire recording session for Lucy in the Sky. Yeah, I I think he was the photographer for the uh, magazine layout for the most part. And most of the, the photographs you see from that era are his. And I think there was one publicity picture that he took that is pretty well known. It became a poster with the newly mustachioed Beatles. Yes, and George has a beard. It has like a blue background. It was on the cover of Life magazine, uh, right? Foreign Life, not U.S. Life. Then someone stole it and made a poster out of it and 
sold millions <laughs> of copies of that poster and Grossman never got a penny for it. Well, that's a shame. Number three, Jeff Wanfor, who was one of Paul's additions to the anthology. He's the one who really figured out how they were going to do the interviews. He's the one who went through all of the John Lennon interview footage and figured out what the questions were so he could ask the same questions to the other three Beatles. His main contribution was the anthology then. The anthology and the McCartney hour-long video, which went along with uh, Flaming Pie. Ah. And he he did some other things with Paul, but Beatle-wise, yeah, his main contribution was the anthology. Good work. A couple of other people who were maybe a little less close. Uh, Just today, we found out that Jim Stewart, the founder of Stax, passed away at age 92. Beatle related well because, A, they loved Stax. They loved the recordings out of Stax. And, B, they almost went there. To record around the Revolver era, but it didn't work out. Post-Rubber Soul, pre-Revolver, they had actually had some plans and there are apparently some contracts and things which were flying around which we haven't seen yet but (laughs) they're in mark lewison's uh library we will probably hear from mark about that although i don't know if that's gonna be this next book (laughs) or not but we do have a, a letter from george where he actually mentions that oh you know we got real close to coming down and recording in stacks but once the word beatles comes into it there's the old demon dollar, and it all fell through. So do you think Jim asked for too much money? I don't know if it was if it was Jim Stewart or if it was the city. It was certainly in part him, I'm sure. And then Beetle in Law, as I like to call her, uh, Christine McVie, I call her that because, well, for all those years, well into the 70s, Mick Fleetwood was married to Jenny Boyd, Jenny Boyd, the sister of Patty Boyd. Head the in law. <laughs> and Christine wasn't actually part of the Fleetwood Mac that we're going to discuss a little bit later. Obviously, from Abbey Road, you know that they were really into what Fleetwood Mac was doing, but it wasn't that long. It was well, like, like 72 and uh, Christine Perfect joined Fleetwood Mac. Right. And she was certainly part of it when it was still a less of a pop band. For sure. You actually were fortunate enough to go on the road with Christine for a while. Yeah, the band I was playing in, The Voices, she did a swing through Texas, and we had the joy to open for her. Were you backing her, or did you just open for her? Not backing her, we just opened the show. As she would travel the country, she'd have regional bands to open her shows for her. Gotcha. And we got the pick for Texas, so, and she was very nice and very gracious, and, you know, I've got really nice memories. I, I have no great stories because she was very much a you know dressing room kind of person past as as you were going backstage and she was getting ready to go on stage yeah we i mean we kind of met the first show and then after that it was like we weren't gonna hang or anything like that so it was nice and it's a great memory for me and so thanks christine it was an experience and one that you're glad to have and it didn't offend her in any way she ever said that damn band from texas <laughs> no i think she liked us all right i felt like it was a good mix as far as what we were doing and what she was playing and so it was, it was a good show i got a lot of good feedback from the people i knew who came out to see it so all right let's move away from that just a quick roundup on, on who's dying <laughs> I think we need to have just a, a segment called The Art of Dying because because people are going to start dropping like flies now. <laughs> so if you were listening last week, we were talking about A Year of Get Back and we were talking about, in particular, the Get Back book. And we had just gotten up to the point of Twickenham. They basically had said, let's shut this down. Or George basically has said, let's shut this down. And so... They headed to Apple Studios. Yeah, I kind of wish there were a little bit more about what was going on in those meetings. I mean, there's a little bit of the dialogue there, but there's certainly more in the Nagras than they put out here, and absolutely more than we got from Peter Jackson. Well, they weren't recording it. And the first meeting went badly. George walked out of that one. And then the second one seemed to have 
settled some of the things that were causing problems because they certainly came back in a much better mood. That's really one thing that I get out of this sort of latter half up into the rooftop. The way the book is organized, you read through the dialogue, you look at the photos, you can just see them getting more confident and getting happier. They say, hey, this thing's actually working as the days pass. Yeah, and maybe you'd expect that. They started this project, none of them knew the songs. and Sometimes they reference a song in a way that makes you know that it had been around. But for the most part, all these songs were brand new and they were running through them and they would get better (laughs) as they did them. And that certainly had an effect on their mood. But I think being at Apple certainly changed the way they felt a little bit more intimate. Everybody who was around, they knew (laughs) at Twickenham, you just sort of had lots of random people hanging around. Yeah. Just staring at you while you're trying to come up with something. It's already a tough thing to write in front of people, but then all of a sudden there's a room of technicians and lighting people. And that's gotta be tough because you're not going to be brilliant all the time. Act two, Apple Studios. We get some photos. I don't think they're from those missing days. Right. I'm a little bit curious as to what days these actually are. I guess we could figure it out from their clothes. We don't get some of the stuff that we do get in the film where they're just talking about, oh, there's a day without cameras And then there's another day where we just get this little bit. I would have thought there might have been some stills. If nothing else, I would have thought Linda would have taken some photos during these days. Well, I think of the film, they mentioned that they go over to check out the studio and it clearly sucks. So there are a couple of days of how are we going to deal with this? A couple of days of Alex sitting by his phone waiting to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) When we finally got him to do a recording studio, we had a 16-track studio, and we walked in there, it was chaos. We had to rip it all out and start again. He had like 16 little speakers all around the room. You know, there wasn't anything he ever did, except he had like a toilet with a radio in it or something. Uh, So we used the same portable, we just took the portable equipment in there. But the studio itself, the the actual room to play in, uh, was much nicer and much cosier and... uh, much more at home you know and in the business of editing they chose not to really include any of that in here we don't get much of the magic alex conversation oh the studio is supposed to have this and was supposed to have that and none of this works they don't even really talk that much about having to bring in the emi equipment clearly that has to be uh something that george martin arranged i think glenn worked out of olympic for the most part that all had to be arranged through george martin and they were pretty much up and running in a relatively short time it's something they talk about in the documentary but they don't really say much about it here in the book is having to work all weekend and and wire everything nor do we get to see the mess of what the wiring actually was (laughs) there's that one long shot in the documentary where you see all the massive cables right there's no way to run anything between the two rooms so they had to go out the door and around the corner in through the other door <laughs> right and i would have liked to have seen some film footage of what was in that studio before they started moving things in i mean what was it that alex had set up at that point all we really know is the board which was just a complete mess right i'd still like to see what kind of mess it was i've never even seen a still of it Yeah, I don't even know if there is one. I mean, all we know for sure is that it was of so little use that they had to pull it out and they eventually just sold it for scrap. That happened a lot. You know, Ringo has a story about how Alex bought a bunch of old military computers and they sat in Ringo's garage for a long time until they finally sold those for scrap. There's lots of jokes about that being the original Apple computer. (laughs) Right. We enter back into the book. We come in on the 21st of January. It starts in with what becomes a running joke in the documentary, but they don't talk too much about it here. John and Michael Lindsay Hogg talking about the rock and roll circus and the fact that John's going to need to 
film and introduction. Well, it sounds like Rock and Roll Circus was as well-planned and scripted as this project, which uh, maybe this is the way Michael Lindsay Hogg works, because it doesn't sound like he even thought about John doing those kind of intros until, oh, maybe I'll get John to do that. We don't know what you want to say. Just say, ladies and gentlemen. Your host for the evening. The Bony Rolls. And in fact, one of the bits of dialogue that we get on Michael Lindsay Hogg here is him saying that, oh, well, we haven't finished editing your blues yet. I just looked at the rough cut, and that's great. So we still got that, and we still got Sympathy for the Devil to do. And those are you know, some of the highlights of the rock and roll circus. Right. In the book, they also come in and they're talking about the ports of the fight. The whole Michael Housego thing. Yes. And, you know, that strikes me as interesting. The Beatles didn't have a reputation really of suing people that I know of, but they were like, can we sue this guy? Derek's like, no, this is not a cause for suing. Yeah. I also like the irony of this coming here after Paul was just telling them the other day, you know, we don't talk to each other about these things. We talk to Neil or we talk to Derek. Right. This is exactly the sort of thing that John and George are taking care of. You want to say this didn't happen? Get together, go call the media, do an interview, say, we don't think this is right. It certainly isn't anything that actually was part of what was going on with us. Yeah, it would have been easy to handle (laughs) a phone call for sure nobody's fighting and we all get a couple shots of john's shirt Uh, this is the shirt that everybody likes there's also an exchange that's in this book paul says sounds fair enough and john's response is san fairy ann (laughs) i thought well that's interesting well it turns out that was a film that came out in 1965 called san fairy ann it starred wilford bramble and then later became a, a title for a mccartney song the dialogue that they have chosen to print for the Apple sessions actually follows along with the documentary much more. It's more complete. There's bits that are not in the documentary, the bits that got edited for time, but it seems the conversations they chose are more or less the same ones uh, in most cases. Yeah, there's a couple of moments, though, in this book that I thought, really? I mean, at one point, they do basically the lyrics to dig it well you know when those lyrics are printed dig it dig it dig it dig it okay dig it oh, really another one dig it i mean there's like a whole full column of john and paul saying can you dig it and i'm thinking why is this in this book <laughs> it's not even the only time that they do that they do it later on john is talking and says greta gago Greta Gargo. Well, in this book, they repeat that like six times. Greta Gargo, Greta Gargo, Greta Gargo, Greta Gargo, Greta Gargo, Greta Gargo. I did it six times. Why is that in that book? Well, it's still better than the transcription of nonsense that was in the original (laughs) version of the Get Back book. Or sometimes the Japanese translations on records. That's a whole other issue, and maybe we can do a whole show on that sometime. Uh, oh my god yeah back before they standardized the lyrics and distributed them everywhere yeah i know the japanese in particular but it's not just them yeah the taiwan version of sergeant pepper was sergeant pepap p-e-p-p-e-p i recall a lot of like like, give a wally bang bang it's like okay on to wednesday the 22nd we were asking about when they started thinking about primrose hill there's a little bit more dialogue it looks like the idea just sort of came up on this day yeah and it actually folds into the idea that the cops would show up and so that's an early thing that whole idea of well having the cops shut us down would be cinematic perhaps this idea will come and go (laughs) it's certainly something that paul was enamored of and i mean you know we go back to paul's thought at twickenham that uh you know he wanted all these news guys and in between the numbers they would have the news guys reporting on news stories and then at the end uh, you have the beatles being dragged off and it's like the beatles split up right it's the same kind of idea he's looking towards that but he'll come off of it as well paul is the one who is hardest to read because he just goes back and forth on things yeah as we get up to the day or the two days before the show he's still like i'm not even sure i want to go up on the roof (laughs) 
is Ringo who has to say, I'll go up on the roof. Yeah. Later on, uh, John basically has to talk him into this. This was never John's idea, but in the end, it's John going, well, come on, let's go. Paul goes back and forth uh, quite a, f- a few things here. Then the discussion goes on again, as in the documentary, but it's a little bit longer here. This is where they actually talk about Fleetwood Mac. They talk about the original Fleetwood right, Mac. with Peter Green and... Uh, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood were part of it. They're the only ones who've been there all the way through. Yes. Peter Green was a force to be reckoned with. But it was now time to form his own band. However, the notoriously humble and quiet Green would walk his own path in doing so. Rather than bask in his well-deserved spotlight, he would shine that light on others. In July of 1967, he recruited drummer Mick Fleetwood to form Fleetwood Mac, which he named after the drummer and his bass player of choice, blues guitarist Peter Green. That's the, the guitarist that John Lennon was talking about. The singer who sort of yeah. half whispers but doesn't scream. Yeah, for sure. And he also mentions Mick Fleetwood's drumming, the style of drumming, which they liked a lot. And it's also interesting that as they discuss this, it won't be very long before they're working on Sun King, which is the song which is most liked, Albatross. Not quite a complete ripoff of it, but certainly trying to be that. I mean, like we were talking about in the Revolver sessions, they would try to be someone else, and then they would move away from that. In Sun King, they never moved away from it. Yeah, it's it's the guitar sound, partially. It's a sound that they they got that's kind of like it. Then in the afternoon, that's when Billy shows up. We get what looks like the full transcription of Billy first kind of showing up here at Apple Studios. Whereas it's certainly better than in the original Let It Be, where all of a sudden there's Billy. You know, we at least get an introduction to him in Peter Jackson's version, but it's still a little bit choppy and a little bit, how do we get from, oh, hi guys, to you want to play along? But, you know, we still kind of have that same edit here. Or when Billy comes in, they do uh, I've Got a Feeling and Dig a Pony. And then when they do Don't Let Me Down, that's really the song that sells them particularly John. But even just the business of asking Billy to play along, you know, saying, oh, we always need a keyboard player. Just looking at the dialogue, they're talking about Little Richard. They're talking about Larry Williams, who's Billy been running around with, who's he playing with. And then all of a sudden, there's certainly a break in the tape, so we don't know what happened between those two. But they fire back up with, you want to play with us? Yeah. And I mean, you know, maybe there's nothing they could do because, well, they don't have any of that material. It makes me think, did they even discuss this before it happened? That Billy was coming in? Were they going, well, Billy could be our keyboard player for this. Is that the way it was brought in? It was always kind of proposed that George kind of asked him to come in, and he did. But was it the idea that he was going to play with them? And as it went, by the end of the day, John is basically asking him to join the Beatles. And this is all not even one day. This is half a day we're talking about. Exactly. They're totally sold. George at one point says, you know, I I feel better because he's doing fills. And Paul says, doing the fills that we should have been doing. (laughs) They're totally sold on him. And even here, we get a shot in the Apple basement. They're already looking like, oh, gee, this this thing works now. Yeah. Well, (laughs) they're looking happier and they're looking more into it than they had at any point during any of the twicking. Yeah. Well, you know, not only is there that fifth instrument, but Billy plays in a way that they didn't. And so, you know, he adds that kind of blues flavor to it that, in a way, I think McCartney copied in Come Together. But it's that kind of feel that he brings to the band. It's different. While they're talking about chords and things, Billy comments that he has perfect pitch i mean that's one of those things that i've always thought about really at least john paul and george and maybe all four of them i think i always thought the beatles had perfect pitch each of them as individuals i don't think so they hand their guitars off to other people to tune <laughs> <laughs> and they're certainly willing to play at times when they aren't particularly tuned so but how often is that intentional i mean john always wanted to be a half step down so you could tell who was playing that he could go and play the record for mimi and say you hear that that's different 
that's me. Right. So, uh, so we get some more photos uh, of them in with the console ending up this day. I also noticed that the day that Billy comes in is also the day that Alan Williams is there. It's mentioned, but they don't say anything about it. We get like one sentence. Alan Williams shows right, up. Because he's in a photograph. So they have to mention him. And we know he's in a little bit of the film, at least, because it's yeah. in the trailer. And, well, Peter Jackson tells us that he's got more. He's got at least a couple minutes of Alan Williams, because that is one of the things that he really wants to put in the bonus feature, should we ever actually get them. Huh. So it's not like there's just, like, two seconds of him. Right. He actually has a conversation, which would be funny to hear, because, well, we all know Alan Williams speaks in a... Very high, squeaky Welsh accent. This wasn't the visit where he brought the... uh... This is not where he lost it. At this point, he says that he left Uh. it at home. But the reason for this visit was he wanted to talk to them about the Lou Walters summertime acetate. Ah. Being the first time that John, Paul, George, and Ringo played together. Right. Now, I mean, of course, it's an acetate made off of a uh, record-your-own-voice booth in Germany, so it couldn't have been that great, but... Still. But if you get $10 million worth of equipment, you can make it sound pretty good. Should we ever find it? That is something we will hand off to Mal. There you go. Well, let's get rid of this lead vocal. We don't We don't want to hear Lou Walter singing. <laughs> Just give us an instrumental version of You Are My Sunshine with the four Beatles on We want to hear Ringo's kick pedal squeak <laughs> on, on summertime. Yeah. All right. Okay, so we're on to Thursday the 23rd. What we get more of is we get more George Martin here. Yeah, and this is really where they do a lot of development on the lyric of Get Back. They talk about the lyrics and the idea that it should be kind of an instantaneous single. The idea that they were put out a different single for every country, which John proposes, is kind of the same mindset he has with Ballad of John and Yoko, where you you put out records that are of the moment. Yeah, and I mean, that would come to be what he did in somehow in New York City. This was also the morning of the infamous Yoko session before George shows up. <laughs> right. There's a nice bit of dialogue where John is talking about, oh, we nearly took the lights out. I wonder whether that's a reference back to the cavern where, well, they did actually take the lights out on any number <laughs> of occasions. Maybe, maybe not. Well, you know, John was thrilled that they got it all on tape and on film. They could do something with it. <laughs> Paul's like, I think you're both crazy. It's very Yoko on a plastic on a band-ish. Yes. It is the more conventional and more, dare I say it, commercial, although that's not quite the word, of Yoko's material. Okay. This is probably more like what most people think Yoko always sounded like the multi-track voice as john referred to it right the things that kate pearson would borrow <laughs> for the b-52s right but it is much more musical and i mean you gotta remember janice joplin was going on around this time true you know they're not quite siblings but i would say what yoko is doing there is kind of a first cousin of that <laughs> right so that takes us past the 23rd we're on to the 24th uh, which is the friday yeah, Billy doesn't show up that day, and this is the day they really discuss him being a Beatle. Yeah. And Paul's against that. <laughs> On page 140 and 141, it shows them in the studio against the board. There's a picture where Paul and George are both pointing up into the air at something. What are they pointing up at, I wonder? And John and Yoko seem to be looking at it as well. I don't know. The board's in front of them, although Paul's pointing with his thumb, and George is kind of just doing an airplane motion almost. <laughs> but they are definitely looking at something. Doesn't tell us what. I don't know. George is wearing the bow tie here, which we know about from the documentary. And they talk a lot about food. Okay. Trying to keep working. Well, we'll hear these remixes now lunch now. Yeah, they I think this is the day where they have a full column of, can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? They do make a lot of headway on two of us. And Paul talks about I Follow the Sun as being an example of one of the songs they did that didn't include bass. 
But I don't know, it wasn't until I read the book where you really made that connection. It was the inspiration of I'll Follow the Sun that moved two of us from being a rocker into obladioblada. <laughs> As they're knocking off for the day, John says, Maisie and Daisy don't want to go. I, 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 what does that mean, I wonder? Probably not something we know. We were talking about how John looked out of it, at least in some of the photos in Twickenham. Here he's looking really good. He's happy. They're energized. I mean, the music, I think they're happier with. But if it starts to sound good, that takes away a lot of uh, anxiety. And they decide to come in for the weekend. They're going to do this, and they're actually going to continue to work on material through the weekend. So we get a Saturday, and we get a Sunday. Right. right. What is in the documentary, which is cut a little bit here, is all of the Rishi Cash stuff. Right. Discussion of the films. But in the book, you can kind of see the difference in the way that uh, that trip was viewed by John, Paul, and George in particular. Especially as opposed to the other two. Yes. Because John and Paul are really just having a laugh over it. That's certainly not the way it started out for them. Because John was very earnest, and I think Paul was certainly into it for a while. Yeah, I I think they were certainly all going to see what as the Ruddles put it, that table tapping thing was all about. I think George was probably the one who stuck with it the longest. John left because he was sick of it in part. I firmly believe that. Right. And I think he also wanted to start up with Yoko. Yep. It was kind of an excuse. It's like, I got to find some way out of here. That'll work. And Maharishi disappointed me. So, but I will comment that they leave in the full discussion of monkeys fornicating in the book. Whereas, whether it was at Disney's request or whether Peter Jackson thought, no, we just don't need about 30 seconds of Paul talking about really opening her up. <laughs> the footage is in the documentary, but they have uh, clipped the dialogue yeah. a little bit. We will leave it at that. Right. After that, Paul gets into, he's just not happy about the show. And these pages really show how they viewed things for this particular show paul isn't happy with where it's going and he can't even explain why but john tells yeah this is the dialogue which found its way into the lp set the the super deluxe edition as well yeah it's a track by itself and in isolation particularly since they seem to have placed it early in the uh let it be box it really makes you think something different than what it actually is it's paul questioning what's going on right. but then john tells him what started out as his has changed and it's gone it's not there anymore it's our number rather than his number and paul's like yeah and the conversation kind of peters out when john kind of is that's what it is paul's not happy because it's not the thing that he set out to be And then the day ends with some really nice photos. We get a photo of each of them. We get John lying in Yoko's lap. We get George playing Rocky, which we just don't really have nearly enough footage of in the documentary. For the longest time, I never even really knew that George was playing Rocky in the Let It Be sessions. Yeah. Here we get some really nice photos. We get one of those lovely two-page spreads of George just looking thoughtful playing Rocky. Right. And then it ends with... The idea of the roof. That was a very long day that Saturday. Yes. Paul is still moaning. (laughs) But he does go up to the roof. Peter Jackson kind of got it right. It's like, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know whether I support this thing. And then just like in the documentary, someone comes and whispers in his ear and he just lights up. Right. And so the photos of them dragging Michael Lindsay Hogg onto the second roof are just as funny as it plays out on film. We get a whole three-page spread of that. Yeah. Of the getting up on the roof and then having to pull him up onto the next roof. Well, Beatles and co. are all, oh, wow, this is great. This will work perfect. <laughs> Which takes us to the Sunday, the 26th. That is the family day. That's Heather in the studio. When it's mixed as it is, I'm sure with a mix on it, it'll be all right. I know what your point Yeah, but we were just uh, feeling that we could tidy it up. Before we like did the one to remake. Excuse. Yeah, no, it's like the, the law. Okay. Just... Like, oh. Shut up, Jill, and sit down. Jill, and sit down. 
Yeah. You're fine. Scares hard. It's those fingers. Sleeps on your door. Oh, Mr. Basement. Don't let me down. Well, should I book the Mike Sam singers? Yeah, just book the Mike. Just book the scaffold. <laughs> just in the back there. We'll drink the drink the drink. Anything. Anything better than that. The human red. The discipline calm down. And they all walk it away. I'd like to hear it with the organ. I think I'd prefer organ and piano to electric piano and piano. Because it's more like a sustaining thing, isn't it? Yeah. Now, do you like the vibe be noise? Yeah, I think the vibes yeah. fit with it perfectly to me. Well, I like the vibe. It's, it's like... Everyone's really sweet to her. Everybody interacts with her. Yeah, we get a little bit more of that here in the dialogue. It was cut down for the documentary. Right, although, you know, in the documentary, she's in there a lot more than... There's a lot more representation, but the dialogue, the interaction, really what we get more of in the documentary, which is, you know, makes sense because you can't really uh, do it properly in the book, is the whole twist and shout, Heather imitating <laughs> right. Yoko thing. So instead, we what they give us is they give us more dialogue. Right, it's sweet. They cover, uh, you know, Ringo doing Octopus's Garden, and I, I took note that uh, George asks about Picasso, which is another song that Ringo was writing. But it shows that George knew of it and asked him if he'd written more words for it, which he had not. And apparently he never did. We still haven't heard it. Yeah, he just went away. So we got Heather just buried in Glenn Johns's white right. fur coat. And then we got photos of, of Paul sort of playing around with Heather. Paul very much... Pointing it, yeah, I'm going to be a dad, a real dad in a couple of years. (laughs) Some solo shots. A nice photo of Johnson and cross-legged with the Hofner next to him. Another shot of George playing Rocky. He's wearing a cravat. Right. When did we ever think cravats were a good idea? They were very popular for hundreds of years. (laughs) Although now it just makes me think of Freddy from uh, Scooby-Doo. I see. <laughs> then a photo of Paul and Ringo, Paul at the piano with the teacups everybody likes so much. Yeah. And then actually what is a shorter version of the discussion we get in the documentary where they're actually talking about what do we want to do with Get Back? Are we ready to make it a single? Yeah, it seems like that was the idea almost from the beginning. Perhaps Paul knew that's what he was writing. It totally encapsulated the idea of what they were doing. Then some nice close-ups of uh, Ringo and Paul, pages 168 and 169. And then on to the Monday as the show date gets ever closer. Right. It kind of seems to me that when they were editing this, it's like once they got past the 25th, it's, let's hurry up, let's hurry up, let's hurry up. We want to get to the show. Because these days just kind of get truncated. And there's lots of stuff that we know was mentioned in them that just isn't printed in the dialogue here. Yeah. I mean, in my own estimation, they could have used more dialogue and less photos. Either that or just make it a bigger book. Yeah. Or they could have done two books. One which is more dialogue and smaller photos and just another full book of photos. We have the Nagras. We can see... A, how long they were working and how hard they were working, and B, how much discussion there actually is in between that just doesn't get represented here. So Billy's back. Yes. Photo of Paul on the drums. George has introduced Old Brown Shoe, which he'd written the night before. He also mentions that it's his favorite song of all of his new songs that he's written recently, and it's kind of sad. It ends up as a non-album (laughs) B-side. Oh, no. 
about an E with an F, which is pretty good. <laughs> this one. Well, and it's back to his thought about, oh, it's upbeat, it's happy, it's not like any of these other songs that I've written. Right. You know, particularly after they really seem to be sniping at each other at Twickenham about, we don't have any good, solid, upbeat rock songs. Doesn't make any sense, unless you're like the third wheel. This was the day after. I mean, we really don't get that much dialogue here at all. We do get a nice picture of John and Paul, although John is out of focus. It's another one where you can really see just how much John had decided to devote himself to the project at this point. This, by the way, is another time that I took note. There is about a half a page of faux German German sounding words. And I think, why? Why why are they devoting the page count here to do that? Exactly. I think there wasn't more interesting things. <laughs> you know, they left out Ringo farting. This is true. Although I'm not quite sure how that would have played on the page either. <laughs> well, they have discussed Primrose Hill, but they don't really talk about the fact that it's pulled up and that they can't do it, they then moved on to the roof, but they don't really explain why they're moving on to the roof. That they gotten back and noticed that, no, you can't do that. Right. And in fact, they don't talk about the weather, which would play a, a big role in, you know, it was supposed to be Wednesday and they couldn't do it on Wednesday right. because it was going to rain. Instead, it was just cold. And it actually wasn't hugely, hugely cold. It was just too cold to be playing music on the roof, windy right. and such. On to the 28th, where they're really sort of getting in mode to do the show. And again, you look at the photos, they're pretty much all smiles. Well, except for we get this one two-page spread of Paul looking very pensive. Pages 178 and 179. And it's kind of what we were talking about. It's like Paul had agreed to it, but he wasn't sure. Yeah. You know, depending on when the photo was taken, there were things going on. One of the things they wanted to do was to pin down what songs they were going to do on the roof and what songs were going to be studio tracks, you know, down, down in the Apple studio. But the big talk at that point was John basically selling everybody on Alan Klein, which reads as more ridiculous on the page than it does when he's actually saying it. Yeah. And it's also, in the end, they both accused each other of doing certain things. You know, Paul buying up extra shares of Northern songs and that sort of thing. And how John felt betrayed by that. And But John did stuff like this. I'm going to talk to you all about Alan Klein together. And then he waits until Paul goes off for a couple hours in the afternoon. And then he sells it to George and Ringo, which intriguingly leaves off the conversation where he tries to sell Klein to Paul. And then, oddly enough, he tries to bring back Road to Rishikesh, which is now Road to Marrakesh, which would become Jealous Guy. Right. He really tried to sell that song. I don't know if it was Paul who thought that that wouldn't work or what. You know, why does he choose that moment to say, you know, let's do this one. I want to learn this one again.
as I face the desert sky and my thoughts return to I mean, there were tons of songs floating around in various stages of development. In the end, was Old Brown Shoe ready? He had all the lyrics, apparently. Could it have been worked up in a relatively short time? Why was it All Things Must Pass? Finally gone, we have something that we could record. They just kind of clipped it at the songs they did. And in the end, at one point, John says the only reason he did one after 99 is so that he'd get on the LP because he basically didn't have much. He had dig it, which everybody would say was not really a song. And across the universe, which was an old song. It wasn't considered at that point. I think they played through it. I mean, they considered it at the very beginning and then kind of dropped it. And then it found its way back into it because it was already in the film portion of Let It Be. Yeah, and that's my point. When the album was thought of, what do we have here? Well, we've got five songs on the roof, and we have the three songs in the studio. That's eight songs. Well, that's not an LP. <laughs> so uh, we'll do Dig It, and we have an old across the universe john didn't really have very much especially when you consider how short i mean mine was at that point before specter went in and extended right the dialogue we get on the 28th is really mostly klein dialogue looking yeah at it. They, they do work on something some serious work this this is roll 541 slate 415 camera a continued section of john and george writing something which really kind of misrepresents the day a little bit looking in their past they clearly would have songs not really developed and they could develop them in a relatively short time that was their history they would come in with what was only slightly more than demos and they would be out with a finished song by the time the session ended that's what i'm saying all these songs basically were almost there and ready to go all it needed was that laser focus well let's finish this one and that's one of the complaints that george has at one point when he talks about if we would have done this correctly we would finish each song you know and have a recording of it and so by now we'd have five finished songs as opposed to well we've gone through these songs over and over we don't really have a finished version of any of them because at that point they didn't and so that was his criticism of how they'd been working. We move on to the 29th. We get a fair bit of dialogue. It is a lot of what we got in the documentary, but it is more flesh out here. It's the business of what are we going to play? They don't have a set list. We need to put our set list together and we need to run through it so we'll be ready to go up on the roof tomorrow. As represented in the book, that doesn't come off quite as well as it probably should. Well, the first thing I had written down was John talking about the second meeting he had with Klein because he'd been up late. At this point, that's hanging over everything. And Glenn Johns basically speaks 
to the character of Alan Klein. There is more of that here. Peter Jackson snipped it down to the bare minimum, but it's enough to get the point across. This has a little bit more flesh to it. In the documentary, it's more like, oh, well, maybe that's the way he talks to you. But when he talks to the rest of us, he does, you know, this, that, and And I think John's response was, no one cares, no one cares. (laughs) A nice photo of Ringo presumably trying to tune an acoustic guitar in front of the doors. (laughs) Right, so much for perfect pitch. There was a moment when... John and Ringo and Hogg are talking really big about locking the cops out and delaying them from coming up. I mean, some of what did actually happen. Yeah, but they didn't lock them out. They did have Mal delay them as much as he possibly could. They played upon the English cops' civility. (laughs) Not being like the cops in New York with the Jefferson Airplane. Right. Exactly. And so they were able to delay them by going, well, we're looking for Mr. Evans now. But clearly they were interested in doing something because there was that camera in the ante room that taped everybody coming in, taped the whole exchange between the cops and the receptionists. They've been holding on to this idea in one form or another almost since the very beginning. But they talk about this. Hogg tells the other two that Paul is going off this idea. But was he? I mean, the one who disliked it through the whole thing was uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. And maybe the deal was he didn't want to get in trouble. Maybe so. He knew that they're not going to do anything to the Beatles, but they're going to have to be yeah. a fall guy. Yeah, maybe so. But that's what he tells them, that he's going off of it. And then it ends the same way. You know, it's like, is it going to work? Are we going on the roof tomorrow? Paul is very insecure. It's interesting that John is basically having to talk him into going forward, which is like a complete flip of of their positions before. I don't know if it's a really flip of their positions. It's George who's always been kind of against it. And John just kind of seems of the moment. And George is still kind of against it. He's begrudgingly accepting of, well, okay, if you all guys want to go on the roof, I'll go on the roof with you, but... No, that's exactly it. I don't want to do it, but if you guys are going to go, I'm not going to be the one to not. So he goes. And another thing at the end of the, this, just as they're getting ready to do their last performance the next day, John and George and Yoko have an in-depth conversation about their solo albums and what they should do. I guess most of that is in the documentary. Yeah, a lot of that conversation is it's misrepresented with shots which kind of don't match up but that's okay yeah but it also makes my point that i think this is a really important book for people to have to understand their positions and where their minds and hearts are at we move on to act three the rooftop now i mean everything text-wise presented is basically just a straight transcript of what's in both the original film and what's in Peter Jackson's version of the rooftop concert. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of photos of their performance and their great windblown hair and great coats and, and Ringo in the red raincoat, George in his tennies and the whole look it's iconic and the beautiful photographs shouldn't be missed but it's after all that that it gets interesting again it's a very long section it's really great we've got everything here flip through it right find the photos you like but as far as what do we learn from it we don't really learn a whole lot other than oh wow these are really great photos right (laughs) look you can see right up paul's nostril and you can actually see billy (laughs) billy really was there right in these photographs over by ringo There is a recap after the performance, and they've come down. Yeah, where they're in the studio. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because George is actually concerned that someone is going to want to do more. And he's like, uh, I forget exactly what he says, but it's like, if we go up there again, they're going to be pissed now. you know. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. But he was concerned at first that that would be done. And then they have a discussion amongst themselves about the legalities of what they've just done, which I thought, well, that's an interesting time to have this conversation. Yeah, I wonder whether George really thought they might be going back up on the roof again. It was clearly over. I mean, especially since we now know that they had to talk them out of sending Mal off in the paddy wagon. It's kind of an odd thing for George to come up with. Although, you know, again, 
that was Paul who talked them out of it. Maybe George had already made his way downstairs. It says, we'll have a break. And Paul says, hey, we'll have lunch and that, and then we'll record the other stuff, the acoustic stuff. And Glenn says, up there? And Paul goes, no, down here. And George goes, no, no, there won't be any more rooftop singing because, you know, they get really... And then, you, get, you know, it's not really George who's saying that, are we going back up on the roof? It's Glenn Johns who's yeah. saying that, which is really, really odd. Well, he wasn't up there to see it all, I guess. Right. I don't know. So on the 31st, which, as we know, was really them finishing up and then filming the videos, which would go out with Let It Be. Yeah, it was also interesting that at that point, they actually bring up doing Teddy Boy. And I'm thinking, that's not even anywhere near finished but it was suggested they're still not sure how this project ends (laughs) right or what songs are included but i mean as we saw from the list george martin had they had enough for two albums right in at least mostly finished shape yeah well and in fact a significant chunk of abbey road had already been written they clearly had an idea of what abbey road was going to sound like to some degree. That also may be why they were so quickly able to pivot and go and tell George Martin, yeah, no, no, we're actually going to let you produce this one. Right. Because, I mean, they certainly had some idea for here are songs which will work in the context of the no overdubs, get back kind of thing. And here's some other songs which you want to do in a more Beatle-like fashion. <laughs> right. The Abbey Road medley is the anti-let it be in a lot of ways and and john didn't like that which is funny because john said apparently bought whole hog into no (laughs) no not michael Lindsay hog but uh, into the idea of just getting in and play right he probably wasn't quite thinking no overdubs but he wasn't thinking suite of partial songs stitched together right with strings and brass and although it's funny a a couple days before when they were talking about two of us john comes in it's like oh well cue the violins and we'll be done right (laughs) there's a picture on page 222 of george looking awfully intense almost scary he's just staring into the camera he's actually looking just off camera he has this look on his face almost like i want to kill that guy i'm thinking wtf actually yeah. What the heck? He's not really happy about what he sees. He has some intense emotion, whatever right. that might be. It's true. The day ends with, again, a bunch of really nice photos of them finishing up the get back stuff. There's one that I really like with the instruments and with Ringo behind his drums, the instruments around, and just the film camera. <laughs> this takes us to the final section. What happened next? That's the part where John claps his hand and goes, all right, let's go break up. The building of Let It Be and how the film was edited down to what it was. But then we get some really interesting shots because these are sessions in the Apple Studios. They're not part of Get Back or Let It Be, but they're certainly in proximity to it. This is the uh, Paul Shaves His Beard sessions. Paul had his beard into the 1st of February, and we know that... On the 15th or so, George has some dental work and is out of commission for the rest of February. Right. So they're, what are they doing in these sessions? Well, I've always heard it was I Want You. They're working on that. I don't know what else. but Or were they doing something Get Back-wise? I don't know. They were thinking that the record was going to be finished soon. And we have a couple more shots from this session. And it's since turned out that we've gotten Glenn Johns's diary from that time and they had to finish on a certain date because glenn johns had to go fly off to the states and then start working with steve miller but we now have his diary he was back in england for at least four or five days and that was almost certainly when these photos were taken why would they have glenn johns and why would they be filming if they were doing i want you were they filming or was it just ethan russell michael Lindsay hogg was also there in Apple Studios with them. They may not have been filming, but the crew was all there. I don't have an answer. Well, I mean, none of us do. This is one of those Beatle mysteries. Come on, Lewison. (laughs) We will find out in, oh, 
eight or nine years, I suppose. Right. right. So let's wrap this up. I guess the only thing we really didn't talk about, you didn't get a chance to see it, but they did do a theatrical run of just the rooftop, and, and that was nice. It, it was approximately just the rooftop portion of day three. That was nice. It didn't blow up completely well to IMAX. Yeah. It's still kind of amazing that Rooftop was filmed on regular film stock, not 16 or 8 millimeter film stock. Right. But it still didn't really blow up all that well to IMAX. Right. It was good. It wasn't great. And the other thing, what's the deal with the home video release? Are we ever going to get anything beyond just this bare bones release that Disney has seen fit to give us? It's kind of a waste. Right. That is what we have to figure out. Anything else going on that we want to mention before we close up shop here today? I don't think so. Go out and buy this book. It's really worth having. I know the idea is it's kind of a coffee table picture book, but it's so much more than that. It almost is two separate things smushed into a single book. Right. I can see your point. I almost wish that the dialogue had been something separate. They really could have almost transcribed all of it. Even with the total number of hours, you put the pages down, it's not that huge. Right. It wouldn't be that much longer than any normal script book. How they chose what excerpts they were going to put of the dialogue in here, I don't know. The Apple Sessions days are kind of obvious, but even there, there's stuff that they could have included that they didn't. True. They seem to be looking for the longest chunks of most relevant to the story dialogue. Yeah. Which ended up being a lot of the same thing that Peter Jackson would use. Whereas in Twickenham, you get a lot of stuff which is different. But of course, they're talking a lot more in Twickenham. (laughs) It's true. Because they don't have quite as much rehearsing to do because they don't have songs in a state to rehearse them. All right. So we will be back next week with a new show. Yes, we will. The October 1962 episode of Toppermost is indeed out. It's gone out on our feed and the Toppermost feed. You need to subscribe to it, though, because uh, after a couple more episodes, it's no longer going to be showing up in the Fab feed. Cool. Well, do that. (laughs) All right, everybody. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. It feels really authentic, at least in terms of what we know and the footage that, again, we've, we've all seen so much of this footage before, you know, um, simply because this is a story about which Beatles fans and music fans are intentionally interested. It's just now suddenly we have a bonanza of it, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're not getting one second in Apple Studio. We're getting many of the seconds as recorded in Apple Studio. So um, I, I don't. I don't believe there's been any kind of intervention. It feels very, very authentic and, uh, you know, to their credit, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them in in a certain sense, uh, because of that. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.